And the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Haharoth, between Migdal and the sea and in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Hahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these are the words of God and they will stand forever. Some of the best storytellers I know tend to start in the middle of the story. Like my five-year-old, Jordan, One of the best storytellers I know. She came up to me this weekend and she said, without any context whatsoever, she said, and then I said to her, Lucy, that's her older sister. Then I said to her, Lucy, you just never know when you might need a unicorn. (laughs) You never know. I had as much context for that story as you did. But I was so intrigued. Like, what are you talking about? That's amazing. You're right. You never know when you might need a unicorn. Some of the best storytellers start in the middle because there's that suspense and there's that intrigue and you just, you don't know what's going to happen. It's that middle point, the turning point where where it, it could go either way, right? Things could really take a turn for the worse and it becomes a tragedy. Or it's that story that all of the events seem to start going the better way and it, and it turns uh, into the best story you've ever heard. It's kind of that moment for me when Simba is passed out asleep after the wildebeest had stormed through and the dust clears and he wakes up. That's, that's, the move, that's the middle of the story, right? That's that moment where he knows what he just witnessed and what he saw and what he thinks is his fault. If you haven't seen The Lion King, I'm sorry I'm ruining this for you. His, his dad had died and he thought it was his fault. But like that's the turning point. You don't know what's about to happen. Everything's about to change. The suspense, the drama. 
The intrigue is in the middle. And I would venture to say that some of you, some of you are walking in the middle part of your story right now. And I don't mean in terms of time, but I mean in terms of suspense and intrigue and mystery. In terms of conflict. The suspense, the the what's on the other side of the page is so unknown to you, at least at this point. It could go either way. Isn't it intriguing? Isn't it frightening? Richard Rohr, who is a contemporary American Franciscan priest, and he's an author and a teacher, and he, he speaks all over the country, he calls this particular time in our lives the liminal space. I think it's such an interesting idea, the space in our lives that is the in-between. You just left something that is very, very familiar and known and comfortable And now you're moving towards something that is completely uncertain and unknown and unpredictable. Liminal is Latin for threshold. So it's that threshold space in your life. But the thing about that liminal threshold space is it's it's such a time where you see God work in a very particular way, right? Rohr says, he says, there alone is our old world left behind. While we are not yet sure of the new existence, it's that good space where genuine newness can begin. He calls the liminal space God's waiting room. Some of you are there, right? You've left something that's very familiar that you know so well, and now you've moved towards or you're about to move towards something so unknown, so unpredictable. You're standing at the threshold. Where will that relationship go next? Are we moving toward marriage? Or do we need to move on altogether? It's a threshold. What in the world am I supposed to be doing with my life come May? Where will I live? What job will I have? Will I get into that school? Who will my friends be? Where will I settle? How will I ever overcome? How will I ever overcome this addiction? Do I have any hope? Can I get past it? What will happen next in my friendships? I've got all these new friends now, but... Like, do, do, they, do they really know me? What's going to happen if they start to really get to know me? Will it last? Or will I ever get through this grief? Will I ever get through this anger? Will I ever get over this bitterness, this loneliness, this sadness? What is the way forward for me, the liminal space? You can add to the list. You're in the middle of the story. It's not the end. It's not the beginning, it's the middle, and it seems it could go either way. What I want you to hear tonight is that you have a very loving God who's writing the script. There's no better storyteller than this one. But sometimes, as we'll see all semester long, he tends to add in some twists and turns along the way. Some conflict, a little drama, and a lot of waiting and wondering and and hoping Yet he always, he always provides a way forward. Tonight we're beginning this series right in the middle of the Exodus story. And in this encounter we see two things that God does particularly for his people. You see it there on the outline. He directs them and he delivers them. But let me just say from the beginning that he doesn't do either of these things in the way that we would expect him to. He doesn't write the script the way that we would write it. And that's important in and of itself. First, he directs his people 
I'm not going to recap the first 13 chapters. We're going to go there throughout the semester. But if you're familiar with the Exodus narrative at all, to any degree, and it's okay if you aren't, uh, Israel, this, this is God's chosen people, Israel. And they've kind of been through a lot. Up to this point, they've, they've kind of been through it. The story begins with slavery, which was followed by horrible bondage and overwhelming oppression from an evil king. And God then provided his people with a leader, a mediator named Moses. And he went face to face with this evil king. And he began this negotiation process of sorts, demanding that Pharaoh let God's people go so that they might be set free and go to the land that God had promised them in Canaan. Well, for like five or six chapters, that did not go so well, uh, at least especially for Pharaoh and his people. The negotiations turned deadly until eventually Pharaoh gave in and let God's people go. Sort of. Until he didn't. And that's our passage. Where our passage picks up is this time when the Israelites have been traveling from Egypt to Canaan where God had a promise to give them rest, but they weren't there yet and their travel would take some time and it wouldn't be easy and they wouldn't trust God in the wilderness. And he continued to provide for them even when they doubted, even when they didn't know what was next, he provided and he directed them along. And in the beginning of chapter 14, what we just read is that God led them indirectly to this Red Sea. Now, he's leading them, but he's leading them in an indirect route. If you know the geography at all, they could have just gone up and over and down to Canaan. But instead, they go down and to the edge of the sea. This is like if you ask somebody for directions to like Hilton Head and somebody be like, so first you go to Atlanta and then you hang a left. Like that is an indirect path. Perhaps you could get to Hilton Head through Atlanta. That is an indirect route of sorts. I say route because I'm from South Alabama and that's... You know, distinguished. That's an indirect route. So God, I want you to see this. God leads them on an indirect route. Why in the world would he do this? They did not have to cross the Red Sea to travel from Egypt to Canaan, but God led them there and he tells them to stop there and to set up a camp with their faces toward the wilderness and their backs against the ocean wall. Why would he do this? Here's one. Because God has a habit of putting his people in vulnerable places. It's kind of his thing. He puts his people in vulnerable positions that God loves to direct his people to places where they simply can't do anything to deliver themselves out of it. God may be placing you in a position where you simply don't know what to do. That vulnerable place where you can't find a solution on your own. That's actually a really great place to be. But we don't like it. No, we don't like it. And they didn't either. Did you hear them? They didn't like it. When they started realizing what was going on, they started complaining. Because by this point, this very point where Israel reaches the Red Sea, they have nowhere to go. And it's at the same point that Pharaoh begins to kind of... uh, Relent of his decision to let them go. He begins to regret letting his slaves go free, and so he starts pursuing the Israelites, and he means business. Pharaoh assembled this army, this army of Egyptians, 600 plus chariots. This wasn't just some little cluster of a few foot soldiers. This was a cavalry coming after Israel, ready to destroy them. And so, why was Pharaoh coming after the Israelites? Here's why. Because evil kings don't give up so easily. 
You know, we could list a number of movies that illustrate this point. One commentary I read on this passage said that the particular battle at the edge of the sea was really, and I love this phrase, a contest of ownership. This was a contest of ownership. This was actually a battle between two kings. A battle between two claims. Two kings who had claim over the same people. And the people were God's people and they were caught in the middle. And so before we see what God did to save his people, which he did, we stopped there. He saved them, by the way. Spoiler alert. But I I want you to to know that this really isn't just some story you read and you listen to and you be like, oh, that's neat. God saved them. Now let's move on with our lives. Instead, this is a picture of exactly what's going on in the middle of your story right now, too. You know, we are in the middle of a battle. And there are a ton of parallels. It's a fight between two kings. Even in our lives today, one is a tyrannical dictator who wants to reclaim ownership of your life. And the other is a loving deliverer who wants nothing more than for you to be safe and at home with him. And so we live in this time, this battle between two kings. Let me be even more clear. As the evil king Pharaoh came to reclaim the slaves that he had lost, there's an evil prince of this world. The name we are given of him in the scriptures is Satan himself, who is running you down. Who's running you down even as we speak. And he will send his army and he will use whatever weapons he has at his disposal and he seeks to reclaim that which he lost. Why do you think that jealousy and envy and greed hurts so much? That you can't seem to be happy when you lie in your bed at night and you're just wondering what everybody thinks about you. You start to kind of replay the scenes from your day and did I, did I dress right? What did he think? What did she think when I said that thing? And you're, you're kind of working through how do they view me? Or why does he get that opportunity? Or why does, why does she have that body type? And I don't like why is that so often on our minds and you're and you're laying there in your bed and you're wondering why I'll ever be truly happy. Here's why. Because there's a tyrannical king who wants to keep you in bondage. He doesn't want you to be free. Why do you think quitting porn is so hard? Or quitting anything that, that you know is doing harm for you and your relationships. Why, why is it so excruciatingly difficult? Because there's a battle going on for your soul. And why do you think you so quickly find yourself sliding into deep discouragement or despair or constant doubts or, or paralyzing fear? It's because there's real evil in this world. And there's a real fight inside our own minds and our own bodies and our own hearts even now. And and so what I want you to see in the story of Moses this semester is that there are good guys and there are bad guys. There are horrible mistakes. There are terrible slave masters. There's suffering and there's evil and there's desert and there's wilderness and there's idolatry of all sorts and doubts and fears and even death. And this is real life. We can identify with this story. Every turn of the page, every paragraph, each and every week, because in so many ways, this is our story. But don't miss this. There's also a good king. There's a good king in this story who works to save his people who really are in real bondage. There's grace and forgiveness and hope and there's freedom on the other side of slavery. 
And there's life on the other side of death. Because the God who directs His people, even indirectly, into the wilderness, even leading them through difficult circumstances, He's the same God who delivers His people from those very places. And and so the Israelites, picture them. Their backs against the sea. And they are freaking out. Did you, did you hear it in the tone of the text? They're kind of going nuts, and I would be too. They see this army coming, and they just know that they're so doomed, and they, so they gently voice their concern to Moses. And they're like, hey, Moses, can we have your ear for but a moment? And Moses is like, yeah, what's up, what's up guys? And, and they're like, why are you trying to kill us? And they're just like screaming, why did we come here? Why did we leave Egypt? Did you bring us here to die? Were there no graves in Egypt? That's sarcasm, by the way. That's Old Testament sarcasm. Are there no graves in Egypt? Like Egypt is known for this massive graves. Are there no graves? Like they're saying it with that tone. And they're just screaming at him. I literally wrote all this in all caps because they're yelling. Did you bring us here to be killed? Okay, so this is the liminal space. (laughs) The time in your life where you've left something very familiar. Egypt was familiar. They've already forgotten how horrible it was, but it was familiar horrible. They don't know what's ahead, but they were pretty sure they were going to die. So let's just kind of freak out. So they do. So what encouragement does Moses give them? Does he say, buckle down, you know, grab your weapons, get ready for the fight. Let's go. Does he give some sort of brave heart inspired, let's do this freedom speech? Does he get the graphics communication team to put together the greatest hype video Israel has ever seen and <laughs> put it up on the screen so they can take on the, the Calvary? No. Instead, he gives them three things to do. This is toward the end. He gives them three things to do. They're pretty easy to remember. He says, shut up. Stand up and look up. Listen to the verses in verse 13. Moses said to his people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. In other words, shut up. Stand up and look up to see your deliverer. This instruction highlights for us something so, so important that we'll revisit a lot this semester. No matter what it is that you're in the middle of right now, you need to know that there are some things you can do. And there are a lot of things you can't do. Because sometimes, oftentimes, God will put you in a position where you just need to shut up, listen to him. Take a stand and look for him to work. This story of Exodus reminds us time and time again that God is the true king. And he really is sovereign over the events of our lives, even placing us in vulnerable positions where we can't do anything but trust him. And when we're in the battle, we stand and we watch him fight for us. Salvation has to come for us from the outside in. 
over and over again throughout the Old Testament. God says something that's so important and comforting to his people to remind them of who he is and who they are to him. He says this thing. He says this thing that becomes such a theme in the Old Testament. You hear it literally in Genesis. You hear it in Exodus. And you hear it in Deuteronomy. And you hear it in Numbers. And you hear it in Leviticus. And you hear it all throughout the Old Testament. It moves over into Ruth and in Kings and Chronicles. And you hear the, uh, the poets talk about it. You hear the prophets like... Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea and Joel say this thing. This is the thing that they so often hear God say when he says, you will be my people and I will be your God. These are good, good words for God's people. When he says, you will be my people and I will be your God. This is a very weighty promise. For those who are his people. Are you his people? Is he your God? Those are important questions. One of my favorite pastors and preachers currently is my new friend, Russ Whitfield. Russ is a pastor in D.C. at Grace Mosaic Church. Look up that church. Listen to his podcast. Grace Mosaic Church, Russ Whitfield. Russ also works part-time with RUF now as the director of cross-cultural advancement, where he does some recruiting and teaching across the country, and he's training campus ministers like me and campus staff like Jen all across the country to help us to think about our campuses that God has put us on and and how to see our campuses through a very real multicultural lens, and and so, so much so that we could lead our ministries to not just be a one particular demographic ministry, but to really reflect the communities in which they find themselves. And Russ is doing a great job leading that. Uh, incidentally, Russ, uh, on the album that we just sang, Hillas Emmanuel, um, that came from an Indelible Grace album. He's the one singing a, a lot of that song on the album. Just multi-talented guy. Russ is hilarious. And one of the things that, that is so funny about Russ is when you look at him, you don't know what his ethnic background is. And he uses this to his advantage a lot of times. He's good for this multicultural role because, like, he is multicultural. And he will often say when somebody would be like, so, uh, what are you? Like, are you, are you black? You're not white. You're kind of white. Are you, are you Latino? And he will always say, and I love it to his credit, he will say, I'm your people. Which is the greatest line. If you're mixed and everyone's asking, what are you? He just says, I'm your people. I just think that's really great. If you're a Christian, I want you to look at the Old Testament through that phrase. These are your people. And the stuff that they're going through is your stuff. And the God that they are worshiping or sometimes rebelling against, the God that they are experiencing and hearing from, this is your God. These are your people. And this is your God. If you are a part of God's true church today, the church throughout the world, then this is a part of your people in the Old Testament. God's people throughout the ages and his promises for them still stand for us. And if you're not yet trusting in Christ, then what I want you to hear as we study these passages, I'm really glad you're here and I hope that you are even exploring what some of this means for you. What I want you to hear is that there is a loving God at work in this world, directing and delivering his people always for their good and always for his glory. And you could be a part of these people as you look to him and try to understand more and more of what his promises mean. 
Because just as God was sovereignly at work directing and delivering his people out of Egypt and soon across the Red Sea and later into the promised land, so too will God work in your life today. Delivering and directing the events in your relationships, in your classes, through your internships, in your family, across the campus, in your apartment or dorm, in the past, in the present, in the future. God is at work. You're his people and he is your God. So how does God direct his people today? Well, in the wilderness, he spoke through a mediator named Moses. And that seemed convenient, right? He would go and hear from God and he would come back and speak to them. But today, on the other side of the cross, we have something even better than a mediator like Moses. God speaks through, one, his words recorded for us, these scriptures of the Old New Testament. God continues to speak through these words, but he also has spoken through his son. I love how the book of Hebrews in the New Testament opens up. It says, in the former days, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these days, God has spoken to us through his son. It's a great parallel sentence in the Greek. In the former days, God spoke to his people through the prophets. And now he's spoken finally to us through his son, If you want to understand God's will, look to Christ's life. If you want to understand God's love, look to Christ's death. If you want to understand God's hope, look to Christ's resurrection over and over again. Your direction is found in your Savior. Look to Him. That's how He directs. How does he deliver his people today? So just as God soon provided a way through the Red Sea, which his people could literally walk through and not be harmed, and his enemies would be trapped so they would no longer be able to oppress God's people anymore, God has provided a way through which we might be delivered ultimately as well. You know, I think it's so interesting that the tyrannical king Pharaoh came to reclaim his slaves by threatening to take their lives. That was his strategy, to reclaim his former slaves by threatening to kill them. But our good king delivers by laying down his own life. Exodus is a story of contested ownership. And so too are our lives. As we are being chased down by the evil one who wants to harm us, and we are being weighed down by the sin that so easily entraps us, In our own lives, we need to stand and see that God has come to reclaim us. And he has provided a way and a truth and a life. A path through which we might walk from slavery to sin to real freedom in Christ alone. You know, you really are in the middle of the story right now. And yours is still being written. And I don't know what your back is up against right now. Um, I don't know if you saw the graphic earlier. Uh, there we go. Thank you, Shelby. This graphic Geneva put together for us, and I, I just think it's so good. Um, one of the things that she captured in this that I'd ask her to do is we're facing, there's a lot going on in this graphic, and there's a lot of meaning that, that perhaps you'll see as we go along in the story. But in the background, you see the sea. You, behind those rescue stories words, you see the red there, the red strokes. 
part of what I see when I look at that is the sea is just beginning to open up. You see it? You have these, this is the Red Sea. And you have these two walls beginning to form, but you don't see it yet. You don't see it fully yet. And I really do think that captures the place where many of you find yourself in this story. What's on the other side, you, you may not know. But the sea is just beginning to part and you're just beginning to see the way forward. I know that God has provided a way for you through His Son. His Son who you can listen to, to stand with and to see Him work even in your life this semester. For some of you, perhaps you will experience the salvation story, a real rescue story for the first time. And others, maybe you'll see it in very particular areas in your life. I'll close with this story. When I was reading through this passage over the last few weeks, thinking of what it must have felt like for the Israelites as they were facing the sea. They're back against the sea. They're seeing this army come. I immediately thought at one point of the great movie Dunkirk. I don't know if y'all have seen this great you know, war movie that came out not too long ago. Let me tell you this story a little bit. Dunkirk depicts another very real story about another group of people with their backs against the sea. Very similar setting. Seemingly no way forward. If you haven't seen it yet, the movie opens up with this like massive uh, battle scene. It's this World War, World War II battle scene on the empty streets of this northern French harbor town named Dunkirk when the Allied soldiers had basically become totally trapped and they were kind of cut off and surrounded by German forces. And I think it was like 400,000 soldiers were stranded on the beaches, French and British and Belgian troops who were really totally hopeless. They were in this abandoned town. They were literally on the beaches, lining up, waiting to be rescued, and there was no rescue. They're just there. They're sitting ducks. And they're waiting for either the German forces to come and take them hostage or to kill them. That's... That's the way that they think this thing is going to end. And so on May 22nd, 1940, Hitler and his folks made a decision that they would have a, uh, a halt order and they were going to figure out their strategy. And so what it did is it gave the Allied forces three days to figure out a way to rescue nearly 400,000 soldiers. And so they put together this plan They weren't able to send enough huge vessels to save that many people. So instead, volunteers came from across the sea, from Ramsgate, England. A group of rogue rescue squad boats came. 850 tiny private boats came from across the English Channel over to Dunkirk to save 360,000 troops in the end. These were not Navy men. These were like ordinary people, like people like us people. Um, It was like people who just had boats. (laughs) There were like firemen boats and true fishermen just bringing their shrimp boats. There were doctors who owned yachts who put them in the water. There were these paddle steamers and a few blue-collar cargo boats. It was an extraordinary rescue in history of All of these soldiers over the course of three days. What a picture. What a picture of salvation from an unexpected place, right? Up against the sea. 
feeling totally hopeless. How will I ever live through this? And then these tiny boats start coming, one after another, rescuing these men. Salvation from an unexpected place. The Israelites were on the verge of such a salvation. Soon the seashore would turn into sea walls through which they would walk and be kept safe by their God when God provided a way. Salvation from an unexpected place. In many ways, you are standing at the threshold even now, one way or the other. Perhaps you're on the verge of such an extraordinary rescue yourself, maybe from an unexpected place. And I I do pray for you that this semester would be one where you look up to the rescuer to write your story, that you would find a way to shut up, to stand up and to look up, to see him coming after you, providing a way to freedom, a way to life and a way to wholeness. Through God's Son, Jesus Christ, who is the way and the truth and the life, even for you tonight. Would you pray with me?